Hello, Fellowship. I have an important announcement today that requires your prayer and participation. As a church body, it's time to nominate new elders to the elder board, as four of our current elders will be completing their terms of service next summer. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of all the congregations of fellowship. We are not a church with elders, we are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. And here is what we're asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Then, if you feel led by the Holy Spirit to make a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. Or if you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick one of those up in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the qualifications of an elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 19th. Please pray for your elders as we initiate this process. Our desire is to be sensitive and responsive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we would like to thank Rod Easley, Steve Lampkin, Dick Nervig, and Steve Weber for their years of service as elders. They have served the Lord faithfully and diligently during their tenure and have represented you well. When you see them, please thank them personally. Blessings to each of you for your prayers and participation in this phase of the elder nomination process. Thank you. Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to Fellowship of Bentonville this morning, where we're going to get to worship our Lord. We're going to get to hear from God's Word, encourage each other, and also... To start off, we're going to get to celebrate with a few families. And so we've got some kiddos and their parents who are here, so y'all come on up. Uh, we get to occasionally do uh, child dedications uh, here at uh, Fellowship Bentonville. And we know that when it comes to children at this church, that many of you pour your lives uh, into them. I'm actually going to stand over here by my man, Henry. Uh, get to pour your lives into them in many different ways, uh, whether it through, be through leading their small groups or being in community with some of these families, leading cell groups for some of our junior high and high schoolers. There's lots of ways that we pour into kids, but everything we do for these kids is so that they would know the authentic Christ and get to experience the true life that he gives uh, to them and to us. And so we're excited to get to celebrate. Now, like most things we do here, this involves you, okay? This is not just for them. Hi, this is, this is for you as well, and you're going to get to participate this morning. And so what does participation look like between parents and the church, Susan? Yes, we truly want to partner with these parents as they raise their children in a godly home and um, as they uh, do the spiritual development of these sweet kiddos, as they go from birth to 18 and plus. I will tell you we're in the plus stage. So, um, But we, the church, want to walk alongside you. And we love having your children on Sunday mornings and teaching them that God loves them and God made them and Jesus wants to be their friend forever. And uh, we just want to be by your side as you travel on this journey. 
But you, their church family, also has a big piece of this. Uh, you are also teaching these little kids in their classrooms, and they're seeing your face regularly. And you're in community groups with them, and so you're getting to walk alongside them. Yeah, and this discipleship process of these kids really will be like a two-decade thing as we walk uh, with them. And this morning is an important uh, beginning to that. And so we believe that baptism takes place when a child or an adult would actually profess their faith to follow Jesus. So what we want to do for some of our youngest is still hold this kind of memorial stone moment and create an Ebenezer where we can look back, the parents can look back, the kids can look back and actually go, that was the moment where my church family came around me and said, they're going to help me know and follow Jesus. So parents, I would encourage you to somehow make an Ebenezer a memorial out of this, whether it be with a picture from this morning or getting the verse that you've chosen for your child, printed off and hung uh, in your home so that when they ask, what is that? You get to tell them about uh, this moment. And so who we got up here? Okay. First, we have Henry with Michael and Elena. <laughs> and then we have Cooper with Ty and Courtney. And then we have Ansel and Jane with Chris and Brittany. And then we have Hannah, Kate, and Henry with John and Olivia. And we have Sweet Cruz with Bryce and Joy. I love it. Okay, I know we got some ameners out here, so I'm gonna need you for this one, okay? Get ready. Parents, raising kids is one of the hardest things in life you will ever do. Amen. Amen. <laughs> but also one of the most fulfilling and rewarding, um, and it blows my mind as a parent myself, that these kids are God's creation, they're his, and yet he has seen fit for you to parent them and to care for them in this season and to help raise them. And so you are actually the ones who get to set the pace of your kids' lives and get to, to choose and map out some of the things that they're going to do. And ultimately what they're gonna need from you more than anything is for you to follow Jesus personally. They're gonna pick up way more from who you are and what you do than what you say or tell them to do. And so I wanna ask a commitment of y'all this morning. You've obviously committed because you're here, but I want you to verbalize it too. And so I want you to respond with I will if this is something you'll commit to. Parents, do you commit to loving your kids with Christ-like love? Leading through humility, apologizing to them when you mess up, teaching them God's word, investing them into biblical community of their own, and shepherding them as a gift from the Lord. If so, say, I will. I believe it. Okay, you guys step down on these steps right here. And extended family, community group, if you're a part of these families' lives, go ahead and come on up. It's gonna get a little crowded, maybe a little rowdy, and that is okay. We welcome it. But rather than asking you or the extended family and community to commit to pray for them, we're just gonna do it. We're just gonna practice it this morning. And so we're actually gonna take the next couple of minutes and pray over these kids. And so if you know one of them, uh, you can pray specifically for that one. If you don't, you see some names and some scripture up here. And I'm gonna actually lead us through a couple of minutes of intentional prayer as we lift them up. I gotta stand over here. This is getting real crowded. I love it. This is a picture of community. These parents cannot do this by themselves and they don't want to. And we need each other. And so uh, as we begin to pray, I wanna invite everyone to pray. You can do it out loud with the people you're here with, uh, also in the quiet of your own heart. But let's, let's first just start by asking that the Lord would move in the hearts of these children to know him, even at a young age, to experience life uh, with Jesus.
we're going to let Luke 2.52 be our guide. And it says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. And so let's pray that, um, that these kids would grow in wisdom and knowledge of who God is and the ability to follow him with the decisions of their lives. Let's pray that they would grow in stature, that their bodies would develop in the ways that God has designed them to so that they can have a full knowledge of who he is and the life that he brings as they grow. And then let's pray that they would have favor with God and with man, that they, the decisions they make would be pleasing to the Lord and that they would actually um, be a fruit of this, the gospel that has transformed them and that people would want to know Jesus because of their lives. Lord Jesus, we love you and we are grateful for the coups and the giggles and the cries and the life that we hear and that we see on this stage even now. Thank you for the gift of life and pray for these parents as they uh, commit to not only following you personally, but teaching their kids to know you so that their children can experience the fullness of life that you've designed. And pray that we as a church would um, partner well with them and help them and pray for them and walk alongside them. Um, we do all of this for your glory and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Let's encourage these families as they grab a seat. I'll hide in the back, but you can still hear my voice. So while they make their way down, I want to introduce uh, a new face, new to some of you, not new to all of you. This is my friend, Pat, and Pat and I, oh, Pat gets applause. What did you do to deserve that? Oh, okay, family. That, that does it. Love it. But uh, Pat and I were actually hired around the same time, a little over a decade ago, and so we've gotten to partner in different ways, mostly at the Rogers campus before we launched Bentonville, and Pat's now in a worship role where he gets to serve multiple congregations, and so he'll be with us a handful of times a year to help uh, give some of our team a rest, but also to use his gifts and to help lead uh, our worship team. And so as he and the team do that this morning, would you guys stand as we magnify Christ the Lord together? Join with creation and seeing Christ be magnified in this place and in our lives. Were creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry, then from north to south and east to west, we'd hear cry.
For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. So the question I have for you this morning is, are you in a place where you're ready to hear his voice? The passage continues and he says, do not harden your hearts like the Israelites did at Meribah, but listen and obey. So I'm gonna share with you just a small quote from this book, Spiritual Formation by Henry Nouwen. And I was reading it this week and I couldn't help but think about this passage. Henry says, being formed in God's likeness involves the struggle to move from absurd living to obedient listening. The word absurd includes the word sardis, which means to be deaf. Absurd living is a way of life in which we remain deaf to the voice that speaks to us in our silence. But the word obedience includes the word adir, which means listening. The obedient life is one in which we listen with great attention to God's spirit within and among us. To be obedient means to constantly be attentive to his active presence and to allow God who is only love to be the source as well as the goal of all we think, we say, and do. So this morning, are we ready to listen to the voice of God? If you're brave enough, I'm gonna ask you to Recite a prayer with me this morning. Would you bow your heads? And would you maybe just hold your hands out in front of you, palms facing up, uh, an image um, of surrender, but also of offering to God. And we're gonna do a breath prayer where when you breathe in, you say, Lord, here I am. And when you breathe out, just say, Lord, you are here. Would you pray that with me? Lord, here I am. Lord, you are here. Let's do that one more time as we prepare to continue to worship this morning. Breathe in. Lord, here I am. Breathe out. Lord, you are here. Let's continue to praise his name together. Means I'm 
and praise in this place today. I know some of y'all said amen earlier. Parent child, you can say amen now. Y'all believe he's worthy? Amen. amen. Well, we've had the opportunity to praise his name, to sing of who he is, what he's done. And now we have the opportunity to ask him to speak to us. God, would you teach us to walk by your spirit? Would you teach us to abide? So would you continue to worship with us this morning? Let's pray this together we see.
your word, may we approach your word with humility, with ears at attention, ready to take in whatever you would teach us today. And God, I pray that we would take that and we would walk by your spirit daily. Would you lead us in your love to those around us? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I hope you're well. Good to see you this morning. Hey, we are a culture that invents vocabulary all the time, right? So in March uh, 
13th, 2020, uh, we saw the birth of a new acronym. And if you work in HR, you know this one and where it comes from. Work from home. Work from home to the point that much of the world during the, at least the height of the pandemic, this is how we made uh, our livelihood. For some of you, this has actually become your new norm. Some of you love it. You will not take a job anywhere unless there's some degree of, of WFH embedded in it. And some of you absolutely hate it. In fact, you could not wait to move your desk out of your bedroom closet and go back to the office when the office finally opened. I know because I did Zoom meetings with you and I saw you in your bedroom office. Some of your bedroom, or excuse me, bedroom closets are, are neater than others are. And you were ready for some sense of normalcy. Now, here's my hunch. Your degree of loving work from home probably hinges on whether it helps you in your work-life balance or whether you feel like it hurts you in the challenge of balancing work and life. The reality is, though, that the challenge of balancing work and life, folks, that's in there long before the pandemic, right? In fact, work from home, that was there long before the pandemic as well. The culture that received the letter to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, all they knew was a fusion between work and home. Work from home was their normal work day. In fact, uh, a typical Roman home that would have been receiving Paul's letter that we've been working through all fall, it would have looked something like this. That home would have uh, not been just a nuclear family of mother, father, children. No, instead, it would have been a family where it was led by what was known as paterfamilias or patriarch or head of household, usually the dad. And that dad was the top box on his family org chart. And underneath him would have been his wife, his children, but also his household slaves and their families. The home and work was fused intricately together. In fact, that father had absolute rule over his household. It was a his way or the highway approach to life. And the gospel shows up to those households, when someone takes on the leadership of Jesus, it begins to saturate and change the way that household is done. In fact, that head of household could no longer then treat those underneath him like property. No, no, no. A subversive grace invaded the authoritarian patriarchy. And this is what a new household code under the leadership of Jesus would look like. There was a new head his name is Jesus. And as head of the church, now all of a sudden, a husband and a wife were equals underneath his rule. Parents and children underneath his rule. Even masters and slaves underneath his rule. Now in Ephesus, it had been the only place in all of their culture where people with such different statuses in the culture would come together at church as equals to one another. A whole new household code. The gospel invading all of the nooks and crannies of your home life, of your work life. In fact, I would say to you, if you this morning are looking for a religion that will only deal with the afterlife and leave this life alone, don't touch Christianity. Because Jesus, he loves to meddle in every aspect of your life. Because Jesus loves you that much. To get down 
to where the gospel works at work and works at home. Church is the new family of God. And as the new family of God, there's some whole new family values that start to become infused. And we just finished a few weeks on Ephesians chapter 5. And we saw in there that these new family values started in verse 1 where it said, every member of the household walk in love. And then verse 18 said, every member of the household be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then every member of the household submit yourself to one another. Last week, all we did was drill down on how that impacts a husband's and wife's relationship in their marriage. And you remember, we saw that the way that touches a husband and wife is that a wife under the leadership of Jesus comes up under her husband and follows and supports him. And a husband under the leadership of Jesus comes up under his wife and lovingly and sacrificially leads her like Jesus would lead. And they have this kind of beautiful building up of one another, this dance in their marriage. And we push pause right there. And this morning, we're going to try to talk to about the other two relationships that would have been in those households. The parent-child relationship, and then what Paul will call the master-slave relationship. And we're going to see how the gospel goes home and how the gospel goes to work. Because my hunch is there's a big group of us that do both. You'll go home, and tomorrow morning you'll get up, and you'll go to work. Let's jump into the text. It begins in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. And it starts out by saying, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And all God's parents said, with a little more enthusiasm than that, though. Because I've heard those kind of conversations in my home, and they have a little more spirit to it than that. And then it goes on to say, honor your father and mother. Notice it's in quotes, telling us it comes from the Old Testament. This is one of the Ten Commandments. A little commentary to it, which is the first commandment with a promise. What's the promise? So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So just like last week, we're going to look at what's commanded and then we'll look at who receives the command. The what's commanded here is the the children obey their parents. The word obey, it's, it's a stronger, more intense word than we saw last week with wives submitting to husbands. Remember last week we said that when the Bible talks about submission, it's two words coming together, meaning arrange and under, that we've been arranged up under one another. Well, this is a stronger term. And this one comes from two words also, under and listen. We begin to listen to those that were arranged up under. Obey. You know, when my kids were little, and during those times that they would get squirrely, uh, and we'd have to have discussions that would try to bring order to the squirrels, um, I would say, look, uh, I mean, the Bible is a big book. It's like it, Your dad is still trying to wrap his mind and heart and arms around it. And so I think the greatest thing is when it comes to kids, it's, it gets very simple, not easy, but very simple, because only three commands to children directly. Listen, obey, and honor your parents. That's it. Just listen, obey, and honor. And when they were little, we talked about that a lot. Hey, hey, don't have to wrap your hands around everything, but you do have to listen, obey, and honor. My hunch is we said it so much that even as adults right now, 
they could call that up. In fact, one of my adult children, if she, she's in this body, if she hears this, she's probably being triggered right at this moment. I have grandchildren who have probably heard the same three things, listen, obey, and honor. That comes right from this passage. It's what Paul begins to say. And this is hard to do for all kids, but it's especially hard to do when mom and dad are not acting like Jesus. So we had other conversations with teenagers in the home. They would be frustrated with us, which was great because I was very frustrated with them. So at least we were on the same page. And they would say, but you're not right. And I'd say, probably. In fact, I want to promise you something. I will make plenty of mistakes. In fact, if I'm doing well and walking with Jesus, I'll probably make several mistakes per week. If I'm not walking with, well with Jesus, I might make several mistakes per day. But you've still got to embrace what God says to you, which is to listen, obey, and honor. And the good thing is you can trust that God will get his hands of discipline all over your dad. But you've got to choose to follow him by following us. So who's the command applied to? It says, children, obey your parents. Are we talking to, to a four-year-old or a 40-year-old? Because that seems like it would make a big difference. Maybe it would help you to know that the word here for children is the word most commonly used in the Bible for those who are still up under their parents' authority. Now, we're not given an age in the Bible. You'll have to, you'll have to hammer that out in your home the same way we had to hammer it out in our home. Uh, for you, that might be until your children are 18 but it might be a little bit longer if you're continuing to support them and they're through college and they're up under your authority. It might be a little, uh, still have some more nuances there. The point is, this is talking about children who are still dependent upon their parents. And yet, I'm still blessed to have an aging mother alive. I'm still on the hook to honor an aging mom. It looks very different than when I was raised in her home but it still applies to me as well. And when I don't embrace that command, it sours the relationship. And that's why Paul says further here, uh, do this so that you might enjoy life. Parents, that's our kids' role. What about to us? Because remember, the gospel's gonna touch every person in the household. Well, to us, we go to verse four. And verse four continues by saying, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Maybe some of your versions you're looking at in your lap say, do not provoke your children to anger. Same word there. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So the command here looks like it's only to dads. And yet the plural for the word father in Greek can also be translated parents. And so moms, this one ties to you as well. And yet, if I were to be candid, this command hits me most often, particularly when our kids were little, particularly that season where we had four young children born to us within six years, and there were moments where it just felt like the inmates had taken over the asylum. And sometimes a good day was defined by everybody fed and everybody in bed, right? And there were times it just seemed like the kids had almost rallied, like they sent a text memo to each other saying, push his buttons now. And it seemed like I was the one who was being provoked to anger. I cannot tell you how many times over the last 35 years of parenting 
that I've been trying to coach God up a little bit by telling him that he got this command backwards. Saying, Lord, if you haven't noticed, they're the ones provoking me to anger. And yet the command says to the parents, don't provoke your kids to anger or don't exacerbate, uh, exasperate your children. It assumes that our children will act, I know, shockingly, childish. But the command is to the one of us in the home who's supposed to manage our anger in a way that doesn't stir up their anger. Why? Because no one wins when anger is just being stirred up in the home. And you know that, right? You try to you go ahead, try to argue with a toddler. You will lose your mind. And then turn around, try to argue with a teenager. You will lose your religion, okay? And at that point, anger then rises in the home, and what happens next is the entire goal of parenting gets lost. Embedded in here is the goal of parenting. Don't provoke your kids to anger. Why? so that we can teach and train our kids in the ways of God. Men and women, especially parents, even grandparents, because I still have a voice in my grandkids' lives. We've got to keep our eye on the ball, particularly when the fans are shouting a lot. And the eye on the ball is not just getting our kids to obey us or to comply, but it's to teach and to train in the ways of God. The way I would say it most simply, it's to shape character and tune their hearts in the ways of Jesus. And I get it. Parenting has a way of being fiercely daily. And sometimes successful parenting, we feel like just means we're getting them to the right things that they have going on. We're showing up, we're chauffeuring, and we're paying up. And as long as we do that, we somehow nailed it. And yet the eye on the ball here is to tell us that shaping character is far more important than even giving them an education or giving them athletic opportunity or giving them artistic opportunity or whatever that extracurricular thing is that we all do. Listen, those opportunities are good, but those opportunities are tools in our hands as parents to do the main job, which is to shape character and tune hearts to Jesus. In fact, I would start to say, as parents, our greatest challenge in our culture, the city that I live in, is that we have so many of those extracurricular activities that it has taken us off of our main goal. And we find ourselves just chasing the schedule. One thing we know for sure is the command is given to parents to keep our eye on the vision of parenting, shaping hearts, shaping character, it's not given to the children. In other words, our kids are not equipped to shape the direction or the priority or the pace of our homes. We know that they're not equipped for that, right? That is the reason we did not let them vote last week. We know that their decisions are suspect. Let's don't give them the priority and the pace and the direction of our homes. They're not wired for that or equipped for that yet. Our job in the household code as parents is to be careful of our anger, 
and to train and to teach. But if I were to stack up all that we've seen in Ephesians 5 and 6 under how the gospel invades your home, it would look like this. Wives, you'll follow and respect your husband as unto Christ. Husbands, you'll lead and love like Christ leads and loves. Children, you'll obey and honor in Christ. Parents, you don't exasperate and you do train toward Christ. Now, if that's the summary, it means a couple of things practically to us. First of all, it tells me that everybody in the house has a job description. Did you notice that? Actually, that's not true. My dog doesn't have a job description, but everybody else has a job description. There's nobody's unemployed in the home. There's something we embrace, and the job description is so clear and twofold that I can remember it. My job as a husband is to love and lead Lisa, as a dad is to not provoke anger, but to train and help shape character. I can remember that. The second thing it tells us is that our job has a qualifier. We do it as unto Christ, or like Christ, or in Christ, or toward Christ, which tells me that the leader of our home is Jesus Christ. And I come up under his leadership in order to live out my assignment in the home. But then the third thing it tells me is that I'm going to need God's power to pull off God's assignment in my home. Remember, before all of these household codes, at the top of that was Ephesians 5.18 that said, be filled with the Spirit. Now, out of the power of God, go go out and live your God-given assignment. This is what a Spirit-filled home looks like on the ground. But how does a spirit-filled employee take that from home and go into work? Because the work and home environment in the Ephesian church, the Roman world, was so fused, Paul just immediately goes to the next set of people in that household, which for him would have been masters and slaves. Let's look at the passage. Starts in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Before we jump down into the passage and apply it to ourselves, we do need to talk about slavery. I had a pastor who used to tell us as a congregation, let's not ever forget that the Bible was written for us all, but not to us. Meaning it was written to a specific people living in a specific time. And this place was Ephesus and the culture was ancient Rome. And when we read the word slaves or slavery, we think in our minds, our modern minds, we think of our antebellum slavery and the history of that in the U.S. and the evils and the oppression of it. 
that that still left a stain even on our country now. Or we think of our current slavery in terms of global human trafficking and that dark uh, uh, um, experience. But slavery in the Roman Empire was different than slavery in the United States, even slavery in England. All slavery, obviously, is evil. But Roman slavery was different in several ways. First of all, Roman slavery was not based on race, was not based on gender. And second of all, Roman slavery was not permanent. A slave could buy their freedom. That didn't make slavery good. That does not make slavery right. But slavery was so woven into the economic and social fabric of Rome, well, that if the gospel is going to invade every nook and cranny of life, Paul had to talk about it. In fact, it's estimated that in the city of Rome itself, one half of the population were slaves. See, it wasn't just the Roman Empire that needed slavery. No, in that evil and fallen system, slaves needed slavery. Because for the working class, it was more threatening, more vulnerable to be a free peasant than it was to be a a working and employed slave. So those who without property or title would often sell themselves into slavery because they had more economic security, more economic opportunity. The Roman household would be made up of both blue-collar slaves and white-collar slaves. There was opportunity for promotion, and if nothing else, there was at least a safety net of shelter and clothing. So into a fallen, sinful culture, economically, in Paul's day, Paul speaks a gospel of grace that starts to change hearts of a slave and of a master. And they attend the same church. And they grow to start seeing one another as equals. And the gospel takes slavery down from the inside out. As people begin to change and treat their slaves differently and the church begins to grow, it creates a permanent progress of all human beings because of the gospel's power. We live in a fallen economic system too. How does a passage like this apply to us? Well, it's not master or slave anymore, but maybe we could apply the same principles to employee and employer. Let's look at it. Verse five, we see in there that all work is God's work which is why Paul gives this command to slaves to obey their earthly boss with respect and fear and sincerity of heart. How could he tell that to slaves who might even be mistreated? Because the sentence doesn't end there. It says, just as you would obey Christ. In other words, when we go to work as an employee, our first set of vision is to see who our real boss is. That we actually look at the person, capital P, behind the person that we report to. Some of us here work for some very difficult people. You might work for a boss who um, is unethical or absolutely self-serving. You might work for a boss you do not respect. But for whatever reason in the sovereign God's mind, he is allowing that man or that woman to be your supervisor for a reason and a season. Begin to honor them in the way you would want to be honored because God wants to use you in their life and he's also using them in your life. 
I'll never forget a story that the late Howard Hendricks told when he was catching a flight from Dallas uh, to XNA to run a series of meetings that I was in. He said when he got to the meeting, I had the most peculiar experience on the flight, little short commuter flight up here. He said, I was sitting several rows behind a very belligerent passenger who was just given the business to this flight attendant the entire flight. He was rude. He was disrespectful. The way Hendrick said it is, this man was giving this woman a piece of his mind that clearly he could not afford to lose. He said, I decided to stay in my seat and be the last person off the plane. So I went up to her and said, ma'am, I plan to write American Airlines and tell them what a valuable asset they have in you as an employee. And she said to Dr. Hendricks, oh, I don't work for American Airlines. And he said, no, who do you work for? She said, I work for God. He's just temporarily assigned me to American Airlines. That was a woman with a different kind of vision in the middle of her work in a situation that would have caused us all to lose our temper or at least lose our professionalism. She was able to conduct herself differently not because of some technique she had learned, but because of a vision she had. And listen, when we see God in the middle of our work, and when we go to work and actually believe we're serving God, not just our customer, uh, not just our suppliers, uh, not just our, um, our direct reports, when we see God in the middle of that work, it helps us get rid of a lie that should have died long ago. And the lie is this, that there's two kinds of work. On one hand, there's secular work. And on the other hand, there's sacred work. Sacred work is the stuff you do in ministry, maybe whether it's paid or not paid. Secular work is all the other stuff in life. Maybe it's your business, uh, your healthcare, your education system, uh, whatever it is industry you use for livelihood. That's secular work. No, there's no such thing. There's only one kind of work and all work is God's work. Interesting, Jesus tells us that one of the first prayer requests we're supposed to pray is, Lord, give us today our daily bread, right? Notice how God answers that prayer. He could provide that daily bread miraculously. He did it with the children of Israel in the desert through manna. He could do that today's lunch. But instead, he answers that prayer through daily work, through a farmer, and a miller, and a baker, and a supply chain, and a merchant. And we now eat daily bread and are thankful to God because God showed up in overalls all through the process and did daily work. I think that's what caused Martin Luther to say that the way a cobbler glorifies God is by making a really good pair of shoes. Uh, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller from Manhattan was leading a work and, uh, and faith symposium, taking a Q&A time, and a pilot asked him at the end of this presentation, I work as a pilot, I have very little interaction with other people, how can I glorify God with my work? And Keller leaned forward and said, well, first thing you can do is land the plane. Like people don't want you to share the four spiritual laws with them over the microphone if you're gonna take it into the ground. Be good at your job actually glorifies God. And when we see Jesus behind the manager we report to or the customer we serve or the project we do 
or the challenges we face, or let's be honest, even the tedium that we deal with, it empowers us. It doesn't mean our work becomes easy, but we can work with a whole new attitude. And don't forget, Paul is talking to slaves here. These are not people who have the top box on the org chart. But he says, even when you do that kind of work, don't you love the phrase? Know that you are doing the will of God. So work with all your heart. All work is God's work. Second thing I see comes out of verse 9. It tells us to serve all people with dignity. And here the command is actually written to masters, or in our current context, employers or supervisors. When Christian masters started obeying this, that's when slavery began to erode. He says, treat your slaves in the same way that you asked them to treat you. I don't know um, what you all have chosen to do as parents, but Lisa and I chose uh, that all of our kids had to do a, a stint through their teenage and college years working in the service industry. So it could be restaurants, could be a coffee shop, could be uh, in retail, could be in construction, could be a janitor, it didn't matter. We wanted them to understand a couple of key things. One, we wanted them to see the value of hard work. We know how that blessed Lisa and I in our formative years, and we didn't want to deny our children the blessing. And two, we also wanted them to see value in all work, not just, quote, the good jobs. One of my sons ended up his first year of college, I guess second year of college, working as maintenance in a Walmart store in the college town that he lived in. As he used to tell me, Dad, the title is way nicer than the job. What that means is I maintain bathrooms with a broom and a mop. And he said, you know what I've learned out of this, Dad? The moment you have a broom or a mop in your hands, no one makes eye contact with you ever again. There is a caste system built into our culture of work of who we see as valuable and who we see as not valuable. Listen, men and women, as you go to work, we operate within an organizational system or an organizational chart, but we should never have an inherent caste system in our hearts that ranks people by their value, gives more people value because of their title and less people value because of their station. When we serve people or when people serve us, even in restaurants, because we're in a service economy, even in a coffee shop, may we treat the person who is serving us with the same kind of dignity that we would treat them if we knew they were the CEO of that business. Because we are not respecter of persons. To use Pauline language, there's no favoritism in us because there's no favoritism with God. We remember that all people deserve dignity. And we also remember that one day God will call us into account on how we treated people at work. Where do we see that in the text? We see it in verse 8. Verse 8 says, here's your promise. You know, you know that God will reward you whatever good you do. Don't miss the context of the good. This is right in the middle of a passage on the workaday world. The good work and the way we treat people will be rewarded by God. Why? Because our work matters to God. All work matters to God. 
Listen, these three principles, all work is God's work, serve all with dignity, and your work matters to God. Will that make your job easy tomorrow? No. But it will make it meaningful. And that makes all the difference. So imagine with me, tomorrow morning, two people from Fellowship Bentonville get up and go to work at the same place. Could potentially be a large employer down the road. He rolls into that parking lot knowing that he needs a paycheck to pay off his bills. He also thinks about the fact that retirement is too far off for him. He can't wait to save as much money as he can to get out of his work as quickly as he can. And he drives into his job. Yet right in the cubicle next to him, she rolls into work, and she believes that she is at that job because she's supposed to represent Jesus Christ somehow. She wants to do that in the quality of the kind of work she does, where she brings value to her company and value to her customers. She wants to do that in the way she treats her employees. She wants to do that in the way she shows off a little a bit of how God made her creative as a problem solver and a planner and, and a fixer of problems. Now, don't kid yourself. She's grateful for the paycheck too because she actually believes it's a privilege to provide for her family and give and share with others. At the end of the day, about 5.52, they'll both get back in their cars and drive home. Only one of them will be fulfilled in their job. Will it be he or she? It's her. What changed? Vision. Vision changed the job. And then when she pulls into that house, when she sees that that family that she cares for, the privilege of shaping squirrely little souls for the glory of God, that vision allows her to endure bedtime routines that aren't working right, arguments at the dinner table, all sorts of things that come up. Vision still keeps her fulfilled. It's that big a deal. Let me pray for us that we would be men and women of vision as we go home and go into the workplace. And oh God, that would really be our simple request. Open our eyes to see what you're up to in our jobs. Open our eyes to see what you're up to in our homes. And we want to live out our assignments in ways that, that join you in your work. We do love you. We do need you. And we're thankful that we can depend upon you. you stand with us once again and let's declare our devotion to God. We sing, oh God, you are my God.
song. Let's lift this up together. Sing, He's worthy. You're worthy of every song we could ever sing. You're worthy of all the praise we could ever Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Jesus, oh, Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, so worthy, is worthy of every breath. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. Sing holy, holy. There is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your love. I count it as a joy every week that I get to come and worship with my friends, with family as we worship God together. And I always leave a little challenged and a little encouraged from God's word because God's word does that. It, it goes to the, the depths of my heart and after the things that, that I struggle with, but also it breathes life, a, a life that can only be found in submission to Jesus and the things that he brings us 
as Lord. And we've seen that throughout this book of Ephesians. We've got one more week next week as we finish out, as, as God is teaching us what it looks like to live holistically for him with the foundation of the theology, uh, the things that, that form us and make us who we are, and then how that plays out into everyday living. And we're called, as, as we've seen from the text, to allow the gospel of grace to transform every aspect of our lives, our relationships, the way that we live, work, and play in this community. And you are not meant to do that alone at all. We don't want you to. And so this is an invitation to connect. If you do not have community that you're walking through life with, especially if you've moved here, new to the area or our church, we would love to help you get connected so we can do this thing together. But also, uh, we want to invite you into prayer. Uh, my friends Dick and Connie Nervig are over here. Some of our staff will be here as well. And we would love to pray with you, for you, for you and your family um, with whatever is going on in your life. If you want to bring that to the Lord, we'd love to come alongside you. But as we go out, may we be Christ's ambassadors as though he was making his appeal through us in the ways that we live in our city. We love you, friends, and we'll see y'all next week.